don't tell them start with Zechariah or Revelation or Ezekiel. Those are the hard ones to understand. And remember, a lot of unbelievers don't know anything about the Bible. So say, well, why don't you start with John or Mark or even Romans? Secondly, even when you look at places that are very hard to understand, it, I study and I say, I'm still not sure what this is talking about. You can still get a spiritual lesson from that, especially these unusual prophecies. For example, someone the other day was mentioning he's been looking at Herman Hoeksema's exposition of Revelation. And a lot of people want to read Revelation and find out who's this Antichrist and what's this beast. And, and, he, and the writer doesn't do that. He concentrates on what God is doing and the practical and spiritual lessons. And I heard a preacher when I was in seminary preach all the way through Revelation and didn't identify the Antichrist on the toes, on the horns, and the beasts. But he brought out the spiritual principles and the practical lessons. Having said that, we're going to do a little bit of that tonight. Zechariah chapter 11. I have an unusual title for tonight. A Tale of Two Lions. Have you ever seen some wildlife documentary on TV and they show, you know, elephants and rhinoceroses and then two animals fighting, usually two males fighting over a woman, even in the animal kingdom. And I've seen um, buck deer fight like that and literally lock horns while some doe over there is watching. And I've seen bulls fight. Ask the Andruses. They have seen raging bulls fight and throw up that dirt and snort. But have you ever seen two lions fighting? The king of the jungle and they roar and they show those huge teeth. In a way, we see that in Zechariah 11. God, the great lion, Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, and Satan, who's called a, a roaring lion over in Peter's epistle. And we'll get back to that later. But my point is, behind the conflicts of the nations and Israel, there's the spiritual fighting of lions. Verse 1. Open your doors, O Lebanon, that fire may devour your cedars. Wail, O Cyprus, for the cedar has fallen because the mighty trees are ruined. Wail, O oaks of Bashan. For the thick forest has come down. You may know Lebanon is just north of Israel. And uh, we support a missionary family there. And Lebanon is mentioned in the Bible and in history known for its tall, strong cedar trees. Big forests and cedars. Wood smells very nice. You know, cedar chests and cedar chips to put in your closet. And the Bible mentions uh, some other people from Lebanon. They, they opposed Israel, but not as viciously as some other countries. For example, when Solomon built the temple, he uh, had a treaty with Hiram from Lebanon that came in and brought tools and wood, and they had a nice agreement. What about today? Well, um, it's mainly inhabited by Arabs, related to the Palestinian Arabs down in Israel, and sometimes there's been fighting between the two countries. But Arabs would be mostly Muslim. There are, however, some Eastern Orthodox Lebanese. Uh, Eastern Orthodox, like Greek Orthodox and Russian Orthodox, are similar to Catholicism. But there are very few Evangelical Christians. But there are some. 
such as our missionary, and he has a little church there. Up until about 1983, Lebanon was known as sort of a holiday resort, a beautiful street along the Mediterranean. It was called the Riviera of the Eastern Mediterranean. And then some of us remember that terrorist bombing in 1983 when Reagan was president. And uh, ever since then, it's been in turmoil with terrorism and famine and things like that. Well, here Zechariah calls attention to the cedars, a symbol of Lebanon's strength. Once before, I said, do a Bible study on the mountains in the Bible. Do one on the trees in the Bible, and especially their symbolism. For example, there's the tree of, the tree of life, the forbidden tree in, in Eden. And several verses say Jesus died on a tree. It was a cross made of wood that came from a tree. There's symbolism in that. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream of a tall tree. So do a study there. And so here it's saying, open your doors, O Lebanon. Fire is going to burn down your cedars. In other words, your kingdom is going to be brought down. And then verse 2, another kind of tree, cedar, and then oaks. Now this is metaphorical language when it says, wail, O cypress trees. Trees don't literally wail and weep. Uh, they may put out sap, but not tears. But this metaphorical language, this would be like God saying to America, weep, Uncle Sam, or wail, land of the free. You see, their strength and their pride was in those tall cedar trees that other countries made deals to get that wonderful wood from. And God says, well, that's a type of you. God's going to bring you down because you're pagan. Mentioned Cyprus trees. Now, that's not the same as the island of Cyprus uh, just out there in the Mediterranean Sea. That's where Barnabas was from. Uh, it's a different word. But Cyprus, I remember down south seeing Cyprus grow in the swamps of southern Louisiana. It's a very soft wood. And then it mentioned oaks. I grew up in a neighborhood in New Orleans called Oak Park. There's one up in Chicago by that name. There were oak trees everywhere. They're very strong in our uh, the Daniel Ranch in South Texas had a lot of oak trees. It was, it was, part of it was in Live Oak County. Oak trees are very strong, and yet God says, I'm going to cut down the oak trees, the cypress trees, the cedar trees, and it says there's going to be this fire. And what he's saying is there's going to be a coming worldwide forest fire. When? At the second coming. 2 Thessalonians 1, Jesus comes in flaming fire, destroying all of his enemies. So those that take pride in these big um, trees or the tall skyscrapers or their money, doesn't mean anything to God. God's going to cut them down. And it says, weep and wail, uh, you shepherds and you trees. Uh, the Bible says false prophets will weep and wail one day in hell. Jesus said so. Verse 3, there's the sound of wailing shepherds. Wailing, wailing. Wailing is not just a silent weeping. Wailing is when there's yelling and screaming. And this, this is a custom in the Middle East of today. I don't know if you've ever seen that in a documentary or something where they don't just weep silently like some peoples in the world do. They let it out, crying, and they pull their hair. And especially the women do this, kind of sound like a little bird or an animal. And the men will yell. And uh, I remember there, I saw uh, on TV a procession. 
This actually happened when Ayatollah Khomeini died. And they were carrying the, the coffin through the streets and the men were just like wild animals yelling and tearing clothes. And they went over the, and they turned over the coffin and were banging on it. And there was the body that was thrown out. It was this violent expression of grief. And God says, you're going to wail one day. The sound of wailing shepherds. Why are they weeping? Because they're losing money because of the dead sheep. Just like in Revelation 17, however, that's going to be fulfilled. It says here are these great empires that are weeping because they've lost their slaves and their gold and their immorality. That's ironic. They're not weeping for their sins. They're weeping because of the loss of certain sinful things. And it says their glory is in ruins. There's the sound of roaring lions. Bible study on lions in the Bible. Samson killed one with his bare hands. You couldn't put me in a cage with even an old blind lion. But Samson killed it with his bare hands. Lions called the king of the jungle. As I said, it's a tale of two lions. Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Satan is called the roaring lion. Who do you think is going to win? Jesus. Now, in these verses and many other places in the Bible, God is threatening various pagan nations through Old Testament prophets. Mostly they rebuked Israel. There's some here. But uh, he also rebuked mostly the neighboring nations to the north, to the west, uh, to the east, to the south. Not much to the west because I was just the Mediterranean Sea. But there are a couple of verses that say the islands wait for thee. And that's probably talking about like the British Isles, and other ones. But you wonder, well, what about the other nations way out there, like Europe, Asia, southern part of Africa, North and South America? Well, Acts 17 says God allowed all nations to go their own way. God didn't send a prophet like Jonah to them. And so God gave them up. And that gets reversed when? The Great Commission go into all the world. There's hope, there's gospel for them. Another interesting principle here is that God holds pagan nations accountable to him. Not just the Jews, but all nations. And not just individuals are accountable. God holds nations. Each nation has a certain flavor to it. Call it the land of the free or the great British Empire or uh, whatever. They all have a flavor, and very few of them have been godly. By the way, let me throw this in, since I mentioned um, North and South America. Uh, even at this time, there may have been some American Indians that crossed over the Bering Strait from Russia and down Alaska, probably. But um, avoid any so-called Bible scholar that says, the Bible does mention America. And I know America in prophecy and those sort of stuff. I'm not convinced that America is specifically prophesied anywhere in the Bible. It's not Mystery Babylon or one of the toes of one of the beasts in Revelation. It's not that per se. By the way, some of those that promote that idea are also promoting an, uh, an era called Anglo-Israelism, also known as British Israelism, saying that the British and their descendants that came to America are the true Israelites. The bloodline is through them, not through those Jews over in Israel that are phonies. That leads to a form of white supremacy, and they say America is in prophecy. No, avoid all of that. That's just a strange cult. 
And yet America and other nations would come under what the Bible calls the ban, the curse of God, because, well, what about the American Indians? You know, you listen to the leftists, they'll say, oh, those are peaceful American Indians. No, many of them were savages. Aztecs had human sacrifices on top of the Mexican pyramids after cutting out the hearts and torturing their enemies. And so um, they practiced pagan religion, the Mayans, the Incas, uh, the Comanches. Some of them were more peaceful. But the thing is, they were still... Pagans worshiping pagan gods. And it says in Acts 17, God let them go their own way until the gospel would come. Okay, verses 4 and 5 now. Thus, thus says the Lord my God, feed the flock for slaughter. It's interesting. You'd say, well, feed the flock for, for good. No, this is prepare them for slaughter. Whose owners slaughter them and feel no guilt. Those who sell them say, blessed be the Lord, for I am rich and their shepherds do not pity them. Here there's a judgment against the Lebanese um, false prophets. They had their religion up there. By the way, Lebanon was close to the scene preached about this morning with Mount Carmel way in north of Israel. But the Lebanese pagans were like sheep without, without a true shepherd. Now that's, that's important to realize the shepherd metaphor here. Human beings are called shepherd, we're the, sheep, we're the sheep of God's pasture, but not all humans are following the true good shepherd, which is the Lord Jesus. Remember, Jesus saw Jews out there that came to be healed, and he fed them, and it says they were like sheep without a shepherd. And the pagans were like that as well. They did not know Jesus, the true shepherd. And so again, there's this judgment on the false shepherds, and as we'll see, they were like butchers. They did not care for the sheep like a good, true shepherd is. And yet we see here God uh, exercising his sovereignty, either showing mercy on sheep or wrath on them. And he does that with either an individual or a nation. That shows God's sovereignty. He can choose some, not others. He can bless one nation and not others. It's his, his disposal, not for us to question. It says here, feed them for the slaughter. Now, uh, it's like ranchers that raise cattle to make hamburgers and steaks or chicken farmers. But we see this other principle. This is applied to human beings. By common grace, God blesses everybody with rain, food, um, beauty, music, art, family, through common grace. But when they reject it, that common grace and the bounties of it is only fattening them up for the slaughter. It'll come back to haunt them. Luke 16 talks about that rich man, rich man in Hades. And remember Abraham says, remember the good things you had back on earth that should have moved you to believe in Jesus. And it didn't. It comes back to haunt them. So rejected blessings of common grace become food for the slaughter for those that die lost, the reprobate. And it says here, the owners slaughter them and feel no guilt. Now, here's another thing people forget is that in the Middle East, sheep were not raised mainly to be slaughtered. You know why they raised sheep? Mainly for the wool. And they trimmed it off and they'd make clothing out of the wool. The women would spin it into cloth. But uh, then they'd grow it again and again. And maybe when it's old, then they would have a feast and slaughter it. But 
Usually they raise it. And so it says here they slaughter this, this sheep. They don't care for them. Good shepherd cares for his sheep, calls them by name and everyone he loves. Um, so here they're, they're not true shepherds. They are just um, butchers. And yet it says here they say, blessed be the Lord, I am rich. What hypocrites. Hypocrites can speak good words from an evil heart. That's a good definition of hypocrisy. Blessed be the Lord. He has made me rich. No, you made yourself rich with your sin. And it says the shepherds do not pity them. They say, I am rich. Doesn't that sound like the Laodicean church in Revelation 3? We are rich and we can see. God says, don't you realize you're poor and you're blind? Come to me and I'll make you truly rich. But this would also apply to people today that are materially rich. Read several of the Proverbs in the book of Proverbs. You can't take your money with you. It's going to be a curse. It's like the old idea of, uh, sorry, from the days of Mark Twain, that there was a riverboat on the Mississippi that was beginning to sink. And the captain says, run for your lives. Jump overboard and swim. Save your lives. We're going down. And there's some guy that said, look, everybody's leaving the money in the, in the gambling room. And he filled all his pockets with all this gold. And he jumped overboard and it sunk with all that extra weight. That's what people are doing today. Think of the super wealthy today. And people envy them. Oh, I am rich. Don't envy the rich, the Bible says. Because all that wealth is only going to bring them down to hell. And it can't save them. They can't buy a ticket out of hell. They can't buy God's grace at judgment day. So they're hypocrites. Blessing the Lord and they're rich and they just don't see and it says, they don't pity them. And then verse 6, I will no longer pity the inhabitants of the land, says the Lord. The point that's being made here is that God's common grace does have limits. There's a verse in Hosea that says, I will love them no more. There is a common grace now, but it has limits. It's like a river that ebbs and flows, and one day there'll be no more. Uh, God turns sinners over to other sinners for punishment, as it says here. I will no longer pity the inhabitants of the land, says the Lord. Indeed, I will give everyone into his neighbor's hand and into the hand of his king. They will attack the land and I will not deliver them from their hand. So this is God's form of judgment when he takes off the hand of protective providence and says, I'm turning you over to sin. There's an old adage, God sometimes punishes sin with sin. He says, I'm going to punish you and let you sin even more, fattening you up and you gobble that up. And God sometimes turns people over to other sinners. That's what often happens in war and in other such tragedies. And we need to see God's hand in that. That's poetical justice in God's providence. And uh, God allows war and these things like that. And we need to be able to detect it. Why does God allow these things? Now, God cannot be blamed for these things. God is above that. He's not the author of sin. But he does providentially allow it. For purposes of justice, for example. Poetic justice. Now verse 7 is one of these unusual verses. So I fed the flock for slaughter, in particular the poor of the flock. I took for myself two staffs, the one called beauty and the other I called bonds, and I fed the flock. What's this about these two staffs? Now the staff could be referring to that pole with a hook on top that shepherds would carry to put around the neck of a straying sheep. 
But this is a little mysterious. He gives them names, and what's, this, what's he saying? I'll tell you first what it does not mean. It does not mean what the Mormon missionaries tell you at your door. I'd been saved only about three months, and I remember one Saturday afternoon, knocking on the door, and there are these two Mormons with bicycles parked out there, and I said, well, come on in. And they said, we want to talk about the Bible. And I, I didn't know Mormons from the man on the moon, so I said, yeah, come on in. I just got saved, and let's talk about the Bible. And they turned to this verse and gave some weird interpretation from the Book of Mormon about breaking the staff, and one becomes the Book of Mormon, and the Mormons and the others, these guys, one what are you guys talking about? It totally baffled me what they were saying. But then later I realized sometimes Christians do this when they take an obscure prophecy in the Bible and try to interpret it for a non-Christian. Non-Christian is going to wonder, what are you talking about? And like, don't witness by choosing one of those beasts in Revelation or those wheels within wheels in Ezekiel and say, now this means this in my church and it doesn't, and there's the Catholics. They're going to say, if that's what Christianity is all about, you, you keep it. I don't understand a word you're saying. Having said that, this is inspired. And I did consult various commentaries and scholars that I can say humbly no more than I do. And the consensus seems to be that it's the idea, again, of staffs that a shepherd brings. And God is the shepherd. And he's talking about how he's judging not just the pagans, but Israel. And that's going to be prophesied later. And it's like he's saying, I'm breaking it in two. This is symbolizing, I'm breaking into my protective providence. Remember, the shepherd uses that to pull back the straying sheep and to use the other club to beat away the wolves. And God's saying, I'm not going to do that anymore. One day you're going to be judged by pagan nations that I'm going to allow to come in. Remember in a previous chapter, he said, I'm going to protect you from these other ones coming in from Greece, even names Greece. We know from history, such as in Josephus' history, that Alexander the Great and his Greek armies came down and they bypassed Israel. Why? God protected his people. But later there'd be a people coming in. God says, I'm going to let them take you over. And that wouldn't be the Greeks, it would be the Romans. So the consensus is this is put projecting these prophecies about Rome. It's, it's mysterious, but that's probably what this is referring to. He's going to annul his covenant with Israel and replace it with a new covenant. And we know that's exactly what happened. Jesus said, I make a new covenant. But it also says something important that's repeated in Ezekiel and Jeremiah, where those two prophets also rebuked the false prophets that were supposed to shepherd the people of Israel. And God says, you're, you're, you're killing my sheep. You're teaching them lies, leading them into idolatry. Step aside, I'm punishing you. I will shepherd my sheep. Notice that's what it says in this chapter. God steps in and does what only he can do. He would do what even the prophets like Elijah and Zechariah could not do. How is this ultimately fulfilled? You have to fast forward to John chapter 10. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. God steps in and does what only he can do. He becomes the God-man, good shepherd. The best of all the shepherds. And he judges the false shepherds. Verse 8, I dismissed the three shepherds in one month. Let me tell you my interpretation of that. I don't know what these three shepherds are. And I consulted prophet, uh, prophets, uh, scholars, and they had different guesses, like these are three different nations or whatever. I have to be honest and say, I just, 
don't know, but we can look at this spiritual lesson here, that God can hire and fire shepherds as ever he wants to. He can raise some up and throw some out. He says, my soul loathed them, and their soul also abhorred me. Now, this will preach. This is one of those spiritual lessons. My soul loathed them. But it's not just them. Has it occurred to you that God not only is angry with sin, he is angry with sinners. Psalm 711, God is angry with the wicked every day. He's not only angry with them, he's disgusted with them, he is loathing them. Loathing is a kind of mixture of anger and disgust. Jonathan Edwards has a powerful sermon on this principle. And he said, and I quote, there is a mutual loathing between God and man. Man really does hate God and loathes God by nature. Oh, they may powder it up and say, look how religious I am. But God opens their heart and says, you really hate me. Look at Bible verses that says that unbelievers hate God. And the more they hear about God, the more they hate God. And they loathe God. And it's as if God says, and the feeling is mutual. God loathes. We are really despicable in God's sight because of our sins. God says, I loathe them and their soul abhorred me. Logan, that'll preach. Make a note of that. I loathe them and their soul abhorred. That's another strong word for loathing or hating. So it's mutual. What's going to break this deadlock? Only the grace of God. You say, well, how can God love those that he loathes? Well, mankind is under the wrath of God, but God still loves mankind. Um, even the elect were under the wrath of God before their conversion. It says that in Ephesians 2, 3. And the reprobate are always under the wrath of God, but they're still temporarily protected by common grace. So God raises up and brings down both true shepherds and false shepherds. And remember, the shepherds are talking about the false prophets, but also the civil leaders. They're held accountable by God. Look at it over and over again where they, the prophets rebuked Ahab and various uh, Jewish kings and pagan kings, the Pharaohs and the Babylonian Nebuchadnezzars and ones like that. How do we tell the difference between the true and false shepherds and true and false civil leaders? Only by the Bible. But you have to see it from God's point of view and realize the best of men are men at best and some of them start well and end up terrible. For example, you know, I study World War II. When Hitler came to power, he was voted in in 1933 and most Germans said, this is just what we need. He's going to stop those evil Bolsheviks in Russia. They're going to come in with their atheism. Let's hear it. Heil Hitler. Boy, were they wrong. Apply that to politics and other leaders that people say, this is just what we want. God may be turning us over to evil leaders that are a judgment that look good at the beginning. You have to have biblical wisdom. If you had had wisdom in 1933 and were a Christian, you could have said, has nobody here read Mein Kampf written in 1924? This is an evil one. Yes, he'll bring in prosperity, but it's a judgment from God and it was. God judges a nation by giving them over to evil rulers and false prophets that bring in pagan religion. Continues verse 9. Then I said, I will not feed you. Let what is dying die. And what is perishing perish. Let those that are left eat each other's flesh. 
Sometimes God does utterly forsake a person or a people. Like the Canaanites, one of the worst people groups in the history of the world. And only a few of them were converted, like Rahab. And again, the scholars say this is probably fast-forwarding. After Alexander the Great would come the Romans. And God used them to judge Israel and to enslave them. And ultimately, what happened 70 A.D.? They were punished, and it says here they'll eat their own flesh. There was something similar in the Old Testament. There was a siege around Jerusalem. People were starving. And there's that grisly story of a mother killing and cooking her own baby. And even the king was, a, you know, just, what is happening here? That happened in the three-year siege. The Romans placed around Jerusalem. People were starving, and they were even turning to cannibalism. Ugh. By the way, cannibalism has shown up in other places, not just certain aborigines in Irian Jaya, not far from Australia. It's been said that if, if you're hungry enough, you'll eat anything. Did you know there was actually some cannibalism in Auschwitz in World War II? I was reading about that recently. Some of the Jews that said, we'll never resort to that. If you're hungry enough, they, they'd find a, a fellow Jew that died and they'd, well, that's what happened. But notice this, this word of judgment. Less, what is dying, die. What is perishing, perish. God does not take delight in the perishing, it says in Second Peter 3, 9. But sometimes God says, they want their sin, let them have it. I'm not going to give them any more grace. Some scholars, uh, scholars, preachers years ago appealed to this in similar verses, where God gives up not just a nation, but an individual, like I've been so good to you, you've thrown it back in my face, enough. This is an old theory called terminism. I have a few pages on this in one of my upcoming books. Some of the um, Lutherans a few hundred years ago, some pietists, Quakers, and even a couple of Puritans held to terminism. What is that? It says that God pleads with a person knocks on the door of his heart, gives him so much good, even enlightens him to know the gospel is true, but that person gets only harder and harder, and at a certain point God says, that's it. This is your last offer, and if you reject it, I'm rescinding the offer, and I'm going to harden your heart. Now, of course, that happens if a person commits the unpardonable sin, but Edwards and even Spurgeon said sometimes God forsakes a person like it says in Genesis 6 which says, my spirit will not strive with man forever. Now that applied to all mankind and God sent the flood uh, in the next chapter, but sometimes that might happen in an individual's life. I think there are degrees of terminism that go too far, but God does sometimes say, enough, let the dying die. If they want their sin, then okay, let them have their sin. Think about that in the Bible. Last chapter of the Bible says something like that. Turn them over to sin. If they want it, let them have it. And that's what's going to happen at Judgment Day. It'll be too late, of course. You wanted your sin? Wages of sin is death and hell. You wanted it? I turned you over to just what you want. Can't blame me. God is very serious in these things. And we need to take heed of his ways that are not our ways. It goes back to the two staffs, verse 10. I took my staff beauty and cut it in two that I might break the covenant. You see, there's a fulfillment. Breaking these staffs is saying that's symbolizing God is annulling his covenant, which I had made 
Not just with Israel, but he says it with all the peoples. Now, that's mysterious. When did God ever make a covenant with Assyria or with China or any others? Some would say, well, God made a covenant with mankind when Noah got off the ark and said, I'm making this covenant. They look at the rainbow. That's a sign that I'm never going to flood the world with, with the water again. So that would be a universal covenant. But it's very interesting. God says, I make this covenant and now I'm going to break it. That's not God going back on his word. It's like they broke it. Therefore, he says, well, you've annulled it, so I'm not bound by my promise. Verse 11, it was broken on that day. Thus the poor of the flock who were watching me knew that I was the word, that it was the word of the Lord. Now that's interesting. The pagans didn't understand what was going on there. Just like non-Christians. When they suffer, if they don't repent, they're going to blame God. Have you ever seen that? Josh, I've seen that in hospitals where a person is in great pain and they're cursing God. And I said, you ought to be glad you're still alive. God provided doctors and medicine. They said, why would God let this happen? And they're just spewing blasphemy. But other people, they're so grateful. And they see what others don't see. Look at this verse. He says, they knew that it was, they were watching me and knew that it was the word of the Lord. Christians can sometimes detect God's fingerprints of his invisible hand of providence. And that's what some people were seeing here. The Christians saw that when the Romans encircled Jerusalem, they said, Jesus predicted this. When you see the Gentiles surrounding the holy city, get out. God's judging them. And they got out and no, no Christians died in that. They saw the hand of God's providence. We need to develop spiritual eyes. Remember Jesus said, if any man has ears to hear, let him hear. If any man has eyes to see, let him see. This is what God is doing. For example, when he sends disasters. Did Christians see the hand of God when he sent the AIDS epidemic in the 80s and 90s? Or the uh, terrorist attack on 9-11. Some Christians did. Or in my hometown of Katrina, of New Orleans, when Katrina hit and over 2,000 people drowned. Or when wildfires in California, Hawaii. We need to see this as a sign of God's judgment. Lord, give us eyes to see. If any man has eyes to see, let him see. Now there's another key to interpret some of this in the next couple of verses. 12 and 13. Then I said to them, if it is agreeable to you, give me my wages, and if not, refrain. So they weighed out my wages 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, that the princely price they set on me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord for the potter. Now, if you know your Bible, you know the fulfillment of this. Judas sold out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver and he bought it back and threw it into the temple. <coughs> Take your money. And they gave it to the potter's field. What's significant about the 30 pieces of silver? Exodus 21, 32 says that was the price of a slave. Notice the irony of this. Judas sold out Jesus for the price of a slave, which was not an exorbitant sum. But in John 10, he quibbled about Mary of Bethany pouring out a whole year's worth a valuable perfume on the feet of Jesus. <coughs> and then John says, he didn't care about the poor. He wanted that money because he carried the bag and would help himself to it. He was an apostolic embezzler. 
So here he was quibbling about money literally being poured out that was a whole year's wages, and yet he sold out Jesus for far less. He really never loved Jesus. There are Old Testament prophecies about Judas. Acts 1 quotes a couple of verses, and then there are types of him, Ahithophel and Goliath and Nebuchadnezzar, another one. So do a study on how the Old Testament not only predicted Jesus, but Judas. Mentions the potter's field, uh, and that's not just talking about that piece of real estate in the old movie, uh, It's a Wonderful Life. Remember Mr. Potter? And there was the, by the way, there's a lot of interesting details. He goes out there and there's potter's field. It's named after him. It's Pottersville. The potter's field in biblical days was set aside for the poor. They couldn't afford a burial site, and so they'd bury him. It's like after a war or when there's mass disease, they said just bury him in some big, deep pit and cover it up. That happened in New Orleans in the 1920s. Remember, that's where I grew up. And when I was a teenager, my father and brother and I used to go digging around to find antiques and antique bottles and stuff like that. And we dug up one of these mass burial grounds, and we didn't know what it was at first. Uh, <laughs> this would be a little grisly, but we dug up some skeletons and skulls that were 200 years old. And we said, what is this? My brother went and did some research, found out this was the mass grave for the yellow, epi yellow fever epidemic of like 1820. We said, ooh. Doctor said, no, it's not going to affect you anymore. And I contacted the assistant district attorney. Is it okay to save these skulls? He said, yeah, just don't sell them. And my point was, it was a mass grave where they buried people that were poor. And that's what the potter's field is. And sometimes that happens with, sadly, people that die derelicts and they don't have any money and they're forsaken and yet the, the county will pay for just a minimum uh, cremation or burial. Most cities have something like that. That was the idea of the potter's field. So when, Jesus, uh, when Judas sold out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, he later felt guilty. Felt, think about that. He felt guilty. And he, he, he said, this, this is wicked. But he didn't repent because he went out and hanged himself. But he brought the money back. Who to? He didn't put it in the potter's field. He brought it back to the Pharisees. And this is, this is again, very poignant. He brought it back to the, to the Pharisees that had bribed him. And it says in one of the Gospels, they wouldn't take it back. They said, this is blood money. We are, we're too holy. We, we can't touch it. What filthy hypocrites. They were the ones that bribed Judas with that very money. But they said, no, we can't touch it. This is blood money. By the way, there is such a thing as blood money that is tainted. If someone won a lottery and came to our church and said, we want to donate this money, they said, no, we don't believe in gambling. That's ill-gotten gain. That's blood money. Well, when Al Capone would give money to charities and Catholic churches, that was blood money because he got it from murder. And there have been other such things. So there is such a thing as blood money. Now, I said that this is a key, a clue, how to interpret this. You have to know your Bible. Judas, in a way, by his very name, typified Judah. Because it's the same name in Hebrew, Judah, Judas, and him 
Selling out Jesus was a type of Israel selling out their own Messiah. And God says, that's the last straw. I sent you prophets. I gave you my law. I delivered you from Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, all these other nations. And this is how you thank me. You kill my son, your own Messiah. So there's that intrigue. Judas was like a type of Israel at large. Sold him out. And God says, that's the last. This will bring about the dissolution of the old covenant. So I said, this is how scholars will look at that and say, ah, this is a clue. How the Old Testament is quoted in the New becomes a key to unlock some unusual prophecies in the Old. Just ponder that sometime. Verse 14 now. Then I cut in two my other staff. You remember there was the first one that he broke. Now he breaks this other one. And it's the one called bonds that I might break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. So it's the first one would say I'm breaking the covenant with all Israel. Now that brotherhood between Judah, the southern large tribe and the rest of Israel. Um, he, he allowed the civil war in Israel and division north and south. God sometimes lets that happen to a nation in a civil war, such as in the United States, such as in England in the 1640s and in other nations. Look around the world, what's happening in Ukraine, for example. God says, I'll turn them over to themselves and they fight amongst themselves like dogs fighting over a bone. He says, I'm going to break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. God can either unite or divide a nation or a family. Remember, Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace on earth, but I come to set a mother against her daughter and a father against a daughter-in-law, brothers and sisters. Jesus either unites or he divides. Verses 15 and 16, and the Lord said to me, next, take for yourself the implements of a foolish shepherd. Remember, the implements would be those staffs and the little club that would be hanging from the shepherd's belt. Take for yourself the implements of a foolish shepherd. For indeed, I will raise up a shepherd in the land who will not care for those who are cut off, nor seek the young, nor heal those that are broken, nor feed those that are still standing. But he will eat the flesh of the fat and tear the hooves in pieces. So God's uh, providentially raising up these bad shepherds. Remember I said he's not the author of evil, so he does this by taking off the restraints and they fall into sin. And God does this as what we call judicial hardening, like fattening up the sheep for the slaughter. Again, he uses the metaphor of shepherds, applying it to the, not just to the false prophets, but to the civil leaders, saying you're butchers. And of course, Adolf Hitler was a great butcher. Look at the Tens of millions that died as a result, but false prophets or butchers because they're leading people to hell. They're doing the devil's work. They're the ones that is throwing out the breadcrumbs, leading the sheep all the way merrily to hell on behalf of the devil. But this principle applies not just to the false shepherds or the false prophets, but to the civil leaders. He holds them accountable. In fact, he holds them more accountable and the false prophets and the people at large at the bottom of this numerical pyramid. Again, I mentioned World War II. The average German may have been guilty, but a lot of them just said, we just want to protect the motherland. 
But then you get up to the Nazi party, but at Nuremberg, not all Nazis were judged because there were a couple of million members of the party. But they went high enough and said, these are the real evil people. They, they developed the camps and the SS and then of course go highest of all to Hitler. In other words, the higher they have authority, the more guilty they are, especially if they permit or promote something that destroys their own people. Do you see where I'm going with this? Not just Nazi Germany and not just the communists with Stalin that murdered 50 million of his own people or Mao Zedong, 60 million of his own people. God holds accountable presidents, prime ministers, premiers of nations that have legalized abortion. Blood of the babies is on the hands of the presidents, not just the abortionists. The presidents did not do anything. The prime ministers did not stop it. And God will hold them accountable. And in America, we're not just talking about Democrats like Bill Clinton and Obama. Even Republicans that were otherwise conservative did not stop abortion. You say, well, wait a second. Wait, wait, wait. Trump put in members of the Supreme Court and they stopped Roe v. Wade. It did not stop abortion. Abortion is still legal in 50 of the states, and people just have to drive across the state line. There's interstate commerce with abortion-reducing uh, pills. It is still, and the numbers are going to go back up again. And so even though the Supreme Court did not stop it, they could have stopped it. I, for one, think that they should have said, it's time to stop the murder, and we're going to stop it. But the Supreme Court didn't. Donald Trump didn't. Not Obama. Not George Bush. or his, Not Ronald Reagan. And God's going to hold our presidents accountable at Judgment Day. You were presidents and you did not stop the mass murder in your own country. And you dare blame Hitler for what he did? You see, I'm sounding like a prophet. That's what God is saying here. I'm going to punish them. You slaughtered your own people and you didn't stop it. Oh, you'd say a woman has the right to this and you bring in euthanasia and they didn't bring in the death penalty for mass murderers. Such leaders are butchers together with the false shepherds. God holds them accountable. Notice, notice what it says and you can deduce by its opposite what a true shepherd does. Verse 16, these shepherds will raise up that do not care for those that are cut off. A true shepherd will. He'll care for the outcasts. They didn't seek the young. A true shepherd will care for the young people. They didn't heal those that are broken. A true pastor will care for the brokenhearted. They didn't feed those that are that's still standing. In other words, these were survivors. They didn't care for them. A true pastor will care for like cancer survivors or people that have survived rape and terrible disasters. A true pastor will reach out to them. False shepherds don't. They don't care. They just want the money. It says, he will eat the flesh of the fat and tear the hooves in pieces. God has a very strong judgment on false shepherds then and today. We conclude with verse 17. Woe to the worth, I like this, worthless shepherds who leaves the flock. A sword shall be against his arm and against his right eye. What he's saying is my sword of justice is like he's going to cut his arm off and gouge his eye out. His arm shall completely wither and his Right eye shall be totally blinded. That's strong medicine, folks. It's just like when Jesus leveled several woes of punishment on the Pharisees in Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. 
God has never liked false shepherds, false prophets, false leaders. Jesus compared them to hirelings. Remember John 10 says the hirelings only in it for the money. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So that's what Jesus does. But some of these hirelings are just in it for the money. And, you, and boy, I, I'm going about to stand on this chair and thunder. I don't want to be within five miles of the promoters of the health and wealth pseudo-gospel. It is a scam comparable to internet scams that lured people in. And that's what Justin Peer is going to talk about at our conference, about clouds without water. These, it's a scam where they send in, send in money and I guarantee God's going to heal you. And they get wealthy off of desperate dying people. And God thunders judgment against them. God will punish them one day. As they slaughtered sheep, God will slaughter them. Now, in conclusion, it's difficult to say when all this will be fulfilled, but as I said, some say this was in that peaceful time of the Maccabees, um, right before the Greeks came by. But most of them would say this would be ultimately fulfilled in the Romans, because that followed after Alexander the Great, which was prophesied in the previous chapter in Zechariah. God used the Romans to overthrow Israel in 70 AD. That was the final end of the Old Covenant. It's been said that was the last nail in the, covenant, in the coffin of the Old Covenant. God started a new covenant. Why? Because Israel rejected God and finally rejected their own Messiah. And that's why the Old Covenant, as Old Covenant, is no longer valid. The moral law is still applicable. It was even before then. Next, this chapter shows that it's not just Israel versus pagan nations. We need to see that behind the scenes there's spiritual warfare in politics, international conflicts, such as over in Ukraine. But it's also what's going on between sinners and between different religions and different empires and between kings fighting against God. And in the spiritual realm, it all gets back to Satan, the roaring lion on the one hand, and God, the Lord Jesus, the lion of Judah, and everything else is either on one side or the other. Jesus said, he's not for me, is against me. So as I began, it's a tale of two lions. Guess which one wins? Jesus. Let's pray. Father, you've told us how it wins. The Lion of Judah defeats Satan, the roaring lion. Jesus is the king of kings. The devil is the king of sin. Jesus is God. The devil is not God. And Jesus is the good shepherd, not the butcher like the devil. Thank you that you have brought us to follow the good shepherd that loves his sheep. In Jesus' name, amen.